Hello, this is Gary Van Wormerdam, and this is the Awareness and Consciousness Podcast from PathwayToHappiness.com. Today I want to address that question, do you need a spiritual teacher? Should you have a spiritual teacher? And for that matter, that question can also apply to a coach, a mentor, some kind of guide to help you make sense of the myriad of chaos and insanity in the world, and personal life, internal dialogue, all those places where drama gets created. And just reviewing briefly, in the last audio I talked about the spiritual path. And a real brief summary of that is that you know, creating enlightenment or attaining enlightenment, you could say very simply is creating or attaining a certain point of view, a perspective where you see things as they are from a state of unconditional love. And considering that all that one has to do to make that whole journey is shift their point of perception, which has the effect of shifting one's emotional state, well, in essence, one really isn't traveling that far. You know, you could sit in one place and do that. So do you really need a guide? And before I answer that question, let me give you the disclaimer. I'm not inviting you to believe me on this. I have one particular point of view from my experience. I've witnessed a number of other people make the journey. Some successfully. Some still working at it. And I've seen a lot of the obstacles and progressions that people make, how they make them, what it takes to work through them and around them. So I have a little more experience than the average bloke. However, let's also consider that my reference point is somewhat skewed. I happen to make my living teaching other people. And so there's a conflict of interest, perhaps, I have a financial benefit to tell you that you should have a teacher or that it's better or you really need this. So keep in mind some amount of skepticism when you consider all this that I'm going to share. But at the same time, you might also want to hold in check any doubts you have, any criticisms you have, because you want to question those as well. You want to be skeptical of that side of the argument as well. And until you have a good base of experience and understanding, you, you can suspend your belief one way or another. Just consider these ideas, for or against, without believing either way, or perhaps try them on, knowing what you're doing, and let them go. See if they make sense. But before you completely dismiss them, evaluate them. So being skeptical is different than doubting. Skeptical means that you apply a thorough evaluation. And that's healthy to anything anybody's telling you. Heck, it's healthy to apply a good dose of skepticism to what you tell yourself. So, do you need a spiritual teacher? To 
create a certain degree of consciousness or evolution or attain enlightenment. I mean, different people have different degrees of what they want to accomplish. And overall, the answer is no. The world is, aside from its general overall fear and degree of insanity, uh, moving along the way it's moving along, and no one needs or is required to do anything more than that. You know, there's a evolution in the consciousness of humanity. We certainly are still, I would say, deep in insanity and fear. However, considering the challenges, it's quite an accomplishment to have gotten where we've gotten. And at the same time, compared to what's possible, we have plenty we can improve on. So does any one person need to do anything? No, it's not required. There's an evolution of humanity as it is. However, for those individuals who want to take on a conscious role in changing their own personal experience of life, how they feel in their relationships, the amount of self-judgment they have, the amount of love that they feel, to keep themselves out of the ups and downs of what's happening in the world and to maintain and govern their own emotions, independent of what the world is doing and independent of what other people are doing or what they say or think about you. To choose to put your point of perception, any different viewpoint at any time. To take it out of victimhood, to take it out of judgment. Does one need a guide to do that? And the answer I'll say is, it depends. It depends on how far you want to go, how fast you want to get there. For the person who's satisfied doing it on their own, that's fine for them. For the person who realizes that, gosh, if I do a good amount of work for six months or a year, and I invest some time and resources into that process, then I will reap the rewards, not just for that year, but for the next year and the next year and the next year and every year of my life. So if someone has that kind of scale of things and they're motivated, then it would make sense to invest in their own personal emotional evolution. in order to reap the benefits for 10, 20, 50 years of the rest of their life. Instead of taking 10, 20, or 50 years of the rest of your life to figure it out and then enjoy it with the time you have left. So if you're in a hurry, meaning you want to move through a lot of this emotional baggage and free up your awareness and raise your consciousness, then there's a great benefit in getting someone who can walk you through this process as a guide who's not just traveled that path before, but is effective at leading other people through this myriad of apparent chaos, both externally in the world and internally in the mind. So it depends your motivation, how much and how fast. If you want to just stumble along on your own and 
meander through some dead ends and get caught up in some stories and emotions and eventually figure your way out on your own, then do that. If you see the benefit of doing some upfront work, want to get it out of the way fast and don't want to waste time going down dead ends, it would make sense to get a guide. Now, there's intelligent arguments about why you don't need a guide and you can do this on your own. And one of the big ones is, at a state of enlightenment, there is no teacher. You are the teacher. There is no path. There is no guru. There is no method. There is no dogma. And you have to leave behind all your processes and your paths and your teachings because they just become myths and tools that you used. And if you take the story of Christ, he's in the desert by himself. Buddha is under the tree by himself. Muhammad went to a cave by himself. They all went out on their own. So we can point to examples of great wisdom of people who left behind a path. However, that's not where those individuals started. And this is where the argument falls apart. Before the Buddha was sitting underneath the tree, dissolving the last of illusions, there was quite a bit that happened in his journey and his process before that point. He went and studied with many teachers and many processes, learned all that he could, and eventually outgrew his teachers in different areas until the final steps, the final breaking free of illusion, he did on his own. So if we're going to use the example of Buddha or any of these teachers, I think we have to look at any individual argument and say, what's the context? Yes, at a certain point, you have to be free of a path. But to even get to a point where you can depart, to be your own great artist of life, create your own teaching. How do you develop the skills, the awareness, control of your attention before you're able to do that? And these are the types of areas that a, a teacher, a guide, a coach are vitally important for. You see, if we think of this process as, as learning, like we do in school, well, at a certain point in school, we know how to read, gather information, apply it, and if we want to learn something more, we just read those specific books and that material and apply it. Well, we're also only applying it in, in an intellectual way, an academic way. So one of these common notions about teaching yourself or being your own teacher a lot of it driven by the self-help industry or be-your-own-guru. A lot of it's grounded in an academic approach of book learning where we can study something and gather knowledge. We can gather a great deal of knowledge and become an expert. And this is how a lot of people pursue their spirituality, their evolution of consciousness. But book learning and a way of gathering knowledge is quite a bit different than 
developing consciousness and awareness. Learning from books uses a very narrow bandwidth of our being. It doesn't apply emotion. It doesn't apply willpower. It doesn't apply to how we interpret that information. It doesn't apply to areas of love, forgiveness. It uses a very narrow bandwidth. So we can read a lot of books and have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge. But what do we do with that knowledge? I mean, do we use it to create judgments about what we should be by now spiritually, how far we should have evolved? I mean, that's very often how the judge and victim in the mind use a lot of what people gather from books. So they have the information, but then they use it to judge themselves and abuse themselves with. A quick example of this is the law of attraction. Very prominent. A lot of people are studying it. They put it into practice. And when it doesn't work for them, they judge themselves as a failure because they haven't manifested what they had hoped. Their mind says, I must be doing something wrong. There must be something wrong with me kind of dialogue that they buy into. And now they're victimizing themselves based on the knowledge of what they believe should work or should have happened. You see, I look at this process of developing one's consciousness, mastering your attention, perspective, emotions, more as a skill. Much like swimming. Some of the things about this process of developing awareness and consciousness and breaking beliefs, which is one of the steps to do that, is that it's counterintuitive. The way we go about it successfully is contradictory to what we think, what our mind thinks is the way we should go about it. Take, for instance, dissolving beliefs. People become aware of the internal dialogue. They try and make it be quiet. They're like, okay, how do I make it go away? How do I make it shut up? And, and that's one of the instinctual things we want to do. But one of the things that's happening when you do that is the judge is judging that dialogue saying it should go away. The victim feels victimized by the fact that it's there and annoying them. So the idea of it going away is driven by another dialogue of a different part of the mind talking about the dialogue that's there. So the very mechanism of the judge and victim that are strategizing how to solve this problem are part of the problem. I mean, your solution is not going to be very effective if it's that part of the mind talking about another part of the mind and how to fix it. So that's often people's intuition to fix it, but it comes from a whole other part of the mind with its own agenda that then becomes stronger and more embedded as we try to follow it. So to circumvent this, to navigate around these kinds of traps. Some of this work is very counterintuitive. Let me use a swimming example. It's as if you didn't know how to swim. You walked into an area where there's a pool or a lake or a river, and you saw someone swimming freestyle or butterfly or backstroke, and you're like, wow, I want to do that. Maybe you go jumping in the water yourself and trying to swim, and you end up gulping a lot of water and 
people drag you out after you panic and flail. So assuming that whole experience of flailing and panic and drinking water in your lungs doesn't give you such a bad experience that you don't want to try it anymore or you say it's not for you, assuming you don't give up right there, maybe you look for some help. And so finally you figure out, well, someone should show me that, how to do this. And they take you to a shallow end of a pool. And they have you hold your breath. They have you hold your breath underwater. And after a few times of that, they finally get you to hold your breath underwater with your eyes open. That's a skill. Blowing bubbles out your nose with your eyes open underwater, holding your breath. All at the same time, a skill. You bring it all together. Add to that, you start floating. Well, to someone who doesn't know how to swim, or doesn't even know how to learn how to swim, they might look at what's going on in the shallow end and say, well, that's not really swimming. What are they doing? Oh, they're learning to swim. Well, learning to swim doesn't look like swimming. And this is the part where learning skills is counterintuitive to the actual doing. You see, being kind and unconditional loving and not judging, how you go about that is counterintuitive to how we think we should go about it. And an experienced guide will guide you through those steps instead of us coming up with our own that take us in the wrong direction, have us jump in the deep end too soon. Okay? They'll take us through those steps of skills so you don't gulp too much water early on. Gulping too much water early on is equivalent to opening up those emotional wounds, being uncomfortable, failing to make changes, judging yourself for failing and not making enough change in the way you thought you would, that kind of self-judgment over failure and feeling worse because the things you're trying aren't working, that's gulping water and that's drowning yourself in a process because you don't know how to use it effectively. And that'll cause you to quit or give up and not even try effective changes that are offered to you elsewhere. So you might figure out how to swim on your own, but you'll probably learn a lot faster if you have a guide. You'll probably be a lot better at it in a lot shorter time than if you teach yourself. And if you try and learn how to swim from a book, you probably won't be as effective as learning from someone who's skilled as a teacher. Because you can't learn swimming from a book. Now, as far as how far you go and how much you want to learn, we can continue with the swimming metaphor. If you want to swim in a pool, that's great. And then you can learn to swim laps and you can learn to swim different strokes. But then it comes 
time and maybe you want to go play in a larger domain. You want to go swim in lakes and rivers. Well, now you have to learn to read the flow of the river. Is there a safe entry point? How fast is it? Are there rocks? Is there a safe place to get out? What's the temperature of the water? How long can you effectively stay out there before you physically, due to hypothermia or muscle cramps, before you get into trouble? The awareness of the temperature, the current, and the terrain make a difference. It's not just about swimming. It's about these other aspects of playing in a larger field. What happens when you go out to the ocean? Would it be helpful to have someone point out where there's riptides and currents and how to read a set of waves? That might be something that could save you a lot of time and trouble having someone point out to you those things as opposed to trying to read it from a book or figure it out on your own in trial and error. The farther you want to go in the journey, the more changes you want to make in life, the, the faster you want to make those changes. Calls for whether you want some guidance or not and how much. In the realm of spirituality, emotions, attitude, point of view, there's a lot of intangibles. These things that are difficult to see because they take place behind the eyes or in the realm of the invisible. And when I say invisible, emotions are invisible, although we can perceive them. If this was just about information, then books would suffice pretty well. But a book can't teach you self-acceptance. A book can't teach you unconditional love. A book can't model for you respect. A teacher, a person who lives this, can. I personally feel very fortunate I had quite an amazing teacher. I'll share an instance where it's one of the big eye-opening lessons of what I was being taught without realizing it. Uh, my mentor, Miguel Ruiz, is a really amazing teacher. Really brilliant. And I would say about two years into my process, I was on a journey. I was spending several days with him on this trip. And I was having some very uncomfortable realizations about the magnitude and extent of my self-importance, how I thought the whole world revolved around me, and how that was manifesting in the way I was trying to teach people and help them and basically being annoying. And so as I'm sitting with this, it occurs to me that, okay, Miguel had to have seen this. I've been displaying this everywhere for some time now. And why the heck didn't he point this out to me? This would have been helpful. 
if he would have mentioned this, you know, I could have done something about it. I could have fixed this. I could have addressed it. You know, I was wondering, why the heck didn't he pull me aside? And Gary is like, okay, you really need to notice this and this and this. Do something about it. So we're sitting nearby, and I'm looking at him, studying him, going, why didn't he tell me? So that I might improve myself. And in the desire, that intent to understand him, his perspective, his behavior of me, why he was ignoring me like that, whatever it was, my point of perception shifted. It shifted to his point of view. And I was seeing myself through his eyes. And I realized why he never said anything about what I was doing, the self-importance I was displaying, the annoying behavior I was repeatedly demonstrating. He never said anything because he had no judgments of me. He had no image in his mind of how I should be any different. Without that image, that expectation that I should be any different, he had no comparison, therefore no judgment. He just simply loved and accepted me just the way I was. You see, part of my mental construct was that I had to somehow become spiritual, become good, become something perfect, if you want to use that word. And then if I was perfect, I would be completely acceptable to myself, and then I would love myself. Here I was in the midst of seeing a huge world of imperfection, which I knew he saw. And he loved me unconditionally. He accepted me completely. And I realized looking at myself from his point of view, this is the way I want to see myself. This is the relationship I want to have with myself. From this perspective. No judgment, no comparisons to imaginary images of perfection. And I could see this is the relationship I want to have with everyone else also. And in my construct of belief systems of how I was supposed to become more spiritual by being more perfect or being some image of expectation, that paradigm didn't fit. To adopt a point of view of accepting yourself completely the way you are with an awareness of all this self-importance and love yourself 
whether you want to call in spite of it or because of it, didn't matter, but just love yourself. This was defining a completely different relationship for myself. One that wasn't in the realm of my imagination at the time. It was completely counterintuitive to what I believed. I should say counterintuitive to what my belief system said was spiritual or how you got to unconditional love or how you got to self-acceptance. And what I realized and reflected on my relationship with him was that he had been modeling that unconditional acceptance the whole time. You see, what I thought of or interpreted from my point of view as not being helpful or ignoring me or not helping me by pointing these things out was actually, from his point of view, just loving me just the way I am. And that was the real teaching. And that real teaching of unconditional love and acceptance kept showing up in the not doing of his interaction with me. You see, his non-intervention was a behavior that didn't make sense to me from my judge and victim image of perfection point of view. But from a point of view of unconditional love, it made perfect sense. That non-involvement in trying to change me was a demonstration of his unconditional love and respect. Whereas I was under the belief that if you really cared about someone, that you would go point these things out to them. That's a different kind of caring one that's not as accepting or respectful. So this experience, this behavior that he was modeling that looked like a non-action on his part, opened my eyes up to see that what he was teaching was something completely beyond what I had fathomed before. I wouldn't have found that kind of love and acceptance and respect modeled in a book. And if it wasn't a book, I wouldn't have interpreted it that way. But having it there as a behavior right in front of me made it a lot more obvious. At the higher levels of the journey to higher states of consciousness. You see, it's, it's not about information. It's about perspective and awareness and emotion. And the subtle ways that that changes interpretation. When you study with someone, we'll talk about it in a spiritual sense now, there's something that happens that's beyond just a transmission of information. You know, when someone tells you a story, they tell you a story from their point of view. And somewhere that point of view travels with that story. You know, somebody tells you a funny story and makes you laugh and you share it with someone else and you make them laugh. The way you're telling the story, the point of view you're telling it from as if the story's funny, 
is part of the story. You're stepping inside the way a person sees things when they share with you. So there's not just a, a transmission of information. There's a transmission of perspective. There's also a transmission of emotion. Earlier podcasts, I've talked about this emotional field that we each, I should say, most people have. And that when someone who's in a different state of consciousness, a different state of love, they're sharing with you, they're sharing with you their story, but along with it, you get their perspective. And along with that, there's a transmission of emotion. And so there's a transmission of consciousness. That happens when you study from someone or or around someone who has a high degree of awareness and consciousness or unconditional love. The same thing happens if you're around people who are big, giant victims. There's a transmission of consciousness. The more aware you are of it, the more you can keep it out. But if you immerse yourself in it, it's likely to affect you not right away, then certainly over time. Because there can be a transmission of consciousness that way also. That point of view becomes part of the way you tell your story. So the question is, do you need a spiritual teacher? No. Not if we use that word need. Might a person have an individual need for a teaching or a teacher to guide them? Yes, their personal desire might be strong enough that they feel it as a need. They have a need to change the way they feel, the way they're reacting, the way they're interacting. Change what they believe about themselves, the judgments they have, what have you. Then that need is a personal choice. And that process to change might be very analytical, very psychological to begin with, might have nothing to do with spirituality. People show up because they're unhappy and they want to be happy. And if it takes on a spiritual context at some point, fine. But it doesn't even necessarily have to do that. Like I've said earlier, spirit means life. It doesn't have to be about a god. It's just about the enjoyment of life. Can you get to that enlightened state of consciousness or close to it on your own? My personal experience and in observing other people, I'd say not very likely. Not very likely at all. The person who does this, or perhaps I'd say the person that this happens to is very rare. The myriad of illusions can be pretty thick. I personally could not imagine having sorted through them on my own or imagine the time it would have taken to figure it out on my own. 
without some very expeditious guidance. Something that I was, well, fortunate in that I found a great guide who could speed things up and open a lot of doors for me to walk through. But not just fortunate because it wasn't an accident that I kept showing up at his classes, his workshops, and on his spiritual retreats. That was my conscious choice, my conscious decision to put myself in as many experiences that would open me up to greater awareness and love and dissolve my fear-based beliefs as fast as possible. I consciously put myself into those situations as often as possible because I didn't want to spend any more time suffering than I had to. I didn't want to have one more emotional reaction than I needed to have. Of course, all of this great value and benefit that a teacher can have to your life that, that will benefit you for years and years to follow is somewhat dependent on the quality of that guide. Quality of a teacher. Effectiveness of that teacher for you. And how to measure that whole quality and discernment and choosing and staying away from frauds. That's a whole other question. That's a whole other set of questions. If you've found these podcasts useful, valuable, beneficial, you might take the time to write a favorable review on iTunes or whatever podcasting website you've downloaded this from. And if you haven't found it useful, then you probably haven't listened this far, and, and then don't bother spending time writing a review. I will be planning some more workshops locally in the country. You can check my events page to find out when I'll be teaching in person. Or join me on a power journey to Mexico. There's one coming up in a couple months. Or you can find me on the phone through some individual private coaching sessions to help you work through those inner demons and thrash them good. Love them to death, you might say. Godspeed. Good luck on your journey to be happy in your life whatever path you create. Thank you. This is Gary Van Warmerdam with the Awareness and Consciousness podcast talking a little bit about the need, the choice for choosing a spiritual teacher. From the website pathwaytohappiness.com